I feel like with Utopia, I was starting at the beginning, after like some destruction. So it was a proposal how you can start a new life. And also, of course, it's not so simple because utopias can be quite radical and revolutionary and political as well. You are listening to Sonic Symbolism. Where Björk explores her emotional landscapes, the textures and timbers of her albums. With friends, author and philosopher Odni Eir and me, musical curator Ásmundur Jónsson. This is episode 9, Utopia. The words that describe Utopia are... Just that Sci-fi island in the clouds. Plant, human, bird, mutants. Post-apocalyptic optimism. Flute-like synths, synth-like flutes. Pacifist. Me too. We are all swollen from hiding his affairs. Let's put it all on the table. Let it all out. Matriarchal. Peach. Mint. Idealistic. Women and children surviving violence. Manifesto the future. 
Gentle Sensuality. In Utopia, a wounded chest opens to become a gate, but a gate to what? I feel Björk's amongst the women that are making our way to a new times of feminism. It's like she's turning one face backwards, fighting the old system, and another face forward, visioning justice and more joy. With Utopia, it was very much the state after Vulnukura. And maybe these albums are siblings in very many ways. Also the fact that I worked a lot with Arka on both albums. And they are almost like before and after of the same situation in many ways. Vulnukura was all winter lava terrain in Iceland with no plants, like really hard and all the melodies were lying on the ground, just lethargic and paralyzed. But this was almost the opposite. It was all in the air because there was no gravity and no rocks. On purpose, we had almost no bass lines, no bass drums. So all the synthesizer sounds are like air sounds and it's just like basically a lot of, lot of air and wind. So I started very early saying, at least sonically, that it was the city in the clouds. The sound world of Utopia consists of flutes, bird sounds, choir and beats. Björk assembled a group of Icelandic women flutists, creating an otherworldly atmosphere. The tour premiered as the digital theater Cornucopia, with animation on 28 moving screens, rotating around the musicians, reverb chamber and bespoke instruments. Utopia is like a fantasy where your visions and thoughts can expand towards a reality on your own terms. The musical world of Utopia, the theatre of Cornucopia, ask you to watch our world from the outside and find a way to consider what's going on.
Time-wise, Vulnikora is the death of the patriarchy or the sort of explosion. And then after the explosion of the patriarchy, the habitants <laughs> of humanity, they go to an island and it's like a post-apocalyptic, but not like the typical male apocalyptic things. It's very destructive and horrible and everybody's dying and da 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 It's the opposite. It's optimistic. So that's the rebellion, because I think in matriarchy energy, you have to be pro-life. You know, if you're raising children or whatever, you can't just be like, oh, yes, and then everybody dead. That's the end. Mm. You have to be like, but, yeah. so you have to invent hope. I think also it was very influenced by me spending like 40% of my time for 15 years in the USA. And actually it's interesting, we are doing this talk now in, in May 2022, and they've had yet another mass murder in a school. Mm. And all the violence for me in USA, I found it absolutely impossible to live with. And there is one thing sitting at home and watching some violent Netflix film, but to actually send your child in a school that's 45 minutes away from Sandy Hook. And I was, you know, going to the school asking like, what would you do if something like this happens in the school? And everybody was just shaking their head like, oh, you know, you just have to live with it. And I felt it was this kind of like, boys will be boys kind of attitude. And here in Iceland, with us having no army and no violence really, it's really hard to imagine it. Sorry to go into all this, but I think it's important to remember that the, when you think about the music on Utopia, there's a reason for all the flutes and all the arrangements are the opposite of conflict. They are avoiding conflict, thousand percent. And it's kind of going politically and also emotionally into a place with how can you start the world anew without any conflict or any polarization or any teams.
flute arrangements on the album, you know, I spent a long time with and it was very exciting to go with 12 flute players into my cabin and they were very brave because, I mean, there's not a coincidence that doesn't exist a lot of music for 12 flutes in the world. It doesn't actually make sense. There was a lot of trial and error and simplifying the flute arrangements and also for the group to get tighter and tighter. Mm-hmm. And I feel actually after we recorded, I found out that seven is a better number than 12. Mm-hmm. So we toured with seven flutes. I understand you did a lot of research on flute myths from various parts of the world. Could you tell us a bit about what you discovered? There was a moment where I was googling into flute music around the world and it seemed like both in South America with the natives mythologies and also in Asia and North America and we found even some African stories. They had like sort of in common, there would be this kind of really violent moment, usually from males or like a war. And then the females would escape and they would go to a place with the children without the males and the wars and the violence. And then they would start in the beginning and they would break a branch from a tree and change it into a flute. And then they would make like flute music. I think there is some sort of femininity or um, self-sufficiency in that. Almost like a queer kind of survival instinct. How can I survive without this testosterone? (laughs) You know, it's not good news. It just ruins everything all the time. How can we survive without it? But I think also in the album, there is also a moment where you realize you cannot survive without it. You have to include it. So it's first you define the new world without violence. You start building things, you grow plants, you have peace, you have a society with rules and it works. And then you can invite the males into it but you have rules. You have said, okay, you cannot be violent here, you cannot kill, you cannot do all these destructive things. So you somehow figure out a way for the feminine energies and the masculine energies to coexist again. My Give a love from 
once you described utopia as somehow sci-fi futuristic. I wanted to imagine this island where there had been some crazy uh, nuclear weapon war or whatever, and the birds had become plants and plants had become humans and humans had become birds and you were a flute and the flute was a bird and the bird was a synthesizer and the synthesizer was so it had this kind of mutant energy that it was like a, it was the end of the world and the biology or the DNA got a bit fucked up and mixed but there's a new beginning and we will all meet there all the women with the children and with the birds and we will start over again How would you like describe in your functional way describing the sound of this album, Utopia? Well, in the beginning, I always have these kind of stick words where I'm um, trying to explain to everybody around me how this album is different from the previous one. And I used to always say and laugh like it was like an albino baby giraffe and people would just shake their heads and you know, go like, oh, wow, she's lost it now. (laughs) But I think afterwards it's so funny because when you have these kind of like things, I actually did not get it, why I was obsessed with it. But afterwards, I think that is my speak for flutes. Okay. Because it has like long necks Mm. and it's white. It's it's like compared to Vulnikura, this was like clean Mm -hmm. world. It was like paradise, you know? Tabula rasa, yeah. But it's not white in a sterile way. It's not white like a hospital. It's white like an albino giraffe. And the baby thing is maybe that it's something just born, you know? So the vulnerability is still there, like in Wulikura, it's still there. In all the, like, aesthetics, it's somehow still very vulnerable. Yeah. But strong at the same time. But but where does that come from? Like this uh, image or like this phenomenon, this baby albino giraffe, is it in your dreams or is it when you wake up, just you have it in your mind <laughs> or, or do you, can you somehow detect that? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like maybe like your references that you have, you know, it's like, it's sometimes it's just, the one that looks most ridiculous, the most absurd one, is actually with most messages to you. Like the humorous one is sometimes the one that is most has most keys to the riddle, you know. And if you look at this album cover of Utopia, the actually little bird is kind of like a baby giraffe. I have a very long neck and I wanted those holes on my neck because I wanted that I was a flute. And also what was really important to me, what I discovered with the colors, is that when you juxtaposition pastel colors, like you have light blue and soft pink, and those usual colors and soft yellow, becomes very like baby world. But when you juxtaposition peach with this very specific green color, it just has this kind of very strange feeling. 
And I found it in all the stories, both the peach blossom story in China and the South American stories and the African stories, they would sort of have these two colors opposite each other. And it's something almost like eerie about it because it's not just baby cute, like Gucci Gucci, like that. It gives it just a little bit of a, I still don't know what it is, but I worked with so many visual people on this project and I sent so many times these two colors, the, that peach color and that green color. And it has to be just the red green and just the red peach. And it gives it this kind of like cloud in the sky, kind of sci-fi, little bit alien. Okay. Because I think if you are trying to make up the manifesto for the island that you're going to in the future, where all your kids are gonna grow up and be happy, and when you are telling the kids the stories, it's alien because you haven't been there yet. So you're sort of telling about this dream. Well, and then we do this, and then we will like do this, and we will have flowers on our foreheads, and you know, it's it's. It's all a little, just a little bit alien. Features, creatures, features, creatures, features, creatures. When I listen to Utopia, I feel like it's a concept album presented in different chapters, like the way the music is divided amongst the four sides of the double vinyl. The thing with Utopia is that it is almost like a theater piece, and it does have a storyline or a, or a chronology. The character is not just me. The character is all the flute players or the sort of society of women that <laughs> escaped. So it's not as personal, it's more universal or more about sociology. You know, maybe that's why I tapped into a world I ne never really have tapped into, theater, which is kind of about the stage and the dynamics between different family members. And, and when you make like a stage with sets, and which I ended up having like 24 curtains traveling the world with me, which is absolutely impossible to execute and finance. But for me, it was because I wanted to establish and introduce this, that it was theater and it was this stage, you know. And there is a story that happens there. It's, it's more metaphysical story. And the story, yes, it is in the order of the songs on the vinyl. I think also when I play my albums live, it becomes very obvious where I position the audience and what sort of shape it is. For example, Biophilia, the stage was in the middle. So the people around us were higher than us and they were all around us and they could come and try the instruments we built. And it was very inviting for kids to learn musicology and utopia is theater so you we needed all the visual sets and i feel like a lot of people who listen to the album and then they came and saw the concert they go they didn't understand it until they saw the concert mm -hmm. 
because we spent so much work into all the curtains and all the flowers and the structure and it was edited so much. It was like years of really, really hard work. And I didn't understand till afterwards that it is almost like editing of an abstract film that is two hour long. Uh, but the edits are not cut in the film editing suite. They are happening with the curtains on stage live. <laughs> so it's kind of like there are a lot of, lot of edits in every single song. You know, there's new visuals 10 times through the song. So in a way, the music of this album is more like a film soundtrack than I thought. All of my mouth was kissing Many find blessing me as a Vespertine wipe. Maybe it's the harp and the beats. Is there a conscious connection between blessing me and Vespertine, or even Vespertine and Utopia? Good question. Um, yeah, there probably is. I think I was not aware of it, but I think you're right, especially now when some time has passed and I look back. I think sometimes I write songs and I kind of decide what instruments I'm going to work with. And I have like a theme, but then sometimes the song just asks for, you know, an instrument. And I felt like with this song being kind of romantic or being like the beginning of when you reach out to someone, you want to make that sort of romantic connection. That energy for me is very easy to express with harp arrangements. I kind of look at Plissimi almost like its own little world inside Utopia. Utopia needed several elements to operate, and one of it was romance.
I think maybe with song like Loss, which is also on this album, with that has harp arrangement. I think for me that was more a conscious connection to Vespertine, because pagan poetry for me is the beginning of a relationship, and loss is kind of the end of that same one. So loss for me is almost like the funeral <laughs> of the same relationship. So those two harp arrangements, they echo each other. And the way I play them live on the tour, I actually edited those two songs together. So you start the Pagan Poetry and you go into Loss. What a memory you have set is an answer to Black Lake on Wulnikura. Musically, these two pieces seem to be related. Can you tell us a little bit about the music in Body Memory? Yes, I think what I'm starting to understand a little bit is it seems like each album for me has one song, especially my last albums like Black Lake, Body Memory, and there is a song on my new album called Ancestress, which is almost like the same saga, if you want. I feel it's a more sort of severe side of me, because I feel I tried at least to have room for humor on my album, playfulness, dancing, romance, love, sorrow, you know. But I'm slowly learning how to make this kind of more severe side of me, make room for that too, which is in Black Lake is, you know, the end of my marriage. So it's like death, I guess. And body memory is probably more about my death for the first time. You know, I listened to Tibetan Book of the Dead on audiobook and kind of like for the first time I could sort of, okay, there might be 40 years until I die or whatever, but for the first time I could like even imagine it because I could never understood when people in the 20s were sharing with me that they were afraid of dying and these kind of things, because I never really thought about it, like I was never thinking about it. But I feel body memory is maybe the first time I kind of, in a sort of quite Buddhist way, you know, how they imagine every day that they would die that day, so it's like a rehearsal their whole life. So when they die, they are really good at it. 
So it's not that you think you're dying soon. <laughs> it's more that you are just letting that part of your character into the possible for something that could happen. which is your question here. The Hamrachis Choir came to New York for the song and we recorded it with really like big chords in Hautekskirkja. And then also live, I wanted the seats to tremble with the big bass. So I asked Björkvin, the organ maker, to make these pipes where people could really feel the drone of the sub and really shake. So it's kind of the same kind of fear of death or when it rumbles your bones. There was an Icelandic person who made the circular flute. And of course, after I'd written all the flute arrangements, mm -hmm. and I was trying to get for the whole album all the colors of the flutes. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to make like playful, and then like in courtship, which is one of the arrangements I'm most proud of, where it's most kind of percussive and almost dance-like. <laughs> And then, for example, tabula rasa, where it's 
I was trying to be as much emotional and with a heart opening that hopefully people would cry. As I somehow see your work as lands or spaces, I remember our talk about those women in the settlement period back in the year 800 and something. The story of how they claimed their own land, depending on how long they could walk with their cow from sunrise to sunset. I actually wrote a song about it called Claimstaker. And it's about claiming land. But I decided to do it in a sort of 21st century way. But I was thinking about the story with the cow. Because it was sort of, I was so happy to find this cabin. And the lyric is, I'm claiming land. And I was shouting to the cliffs up there. And the echo of the rock back was claiming land. And also, I imagined that I would put a laser line to the lake somehow. But it's like a celebrational song. I walk through this land Stake, stake a But then it's like, what's the spectrum, the emotional spectrum? Like you said, like the, the wound transformed into a gate. And this, this one starts by the gate. And where does it end? I mean, where's the spectrum? Um, because there is anger there also, or like, or like yeah. justice, like claiming, claiming justice a little bit, or in, in Sumi. Yeah. I mean, when I did Utopia, it took me a while to understand what I was trying to make. And I realized after one or two years of making it, when I looked back and listened back to back at what I had, is that the perspective was very much kind of what I tried to put on the album cover. <laughs> it's utopia. And it's almost like if I would have that perspective, then the songs are very different. You have songs where, yes, I am in utopia. I got it right. I'm healed. Everything is amazing like a rise in my senses, for example.
And then you have songs, you know, where you want to heal, you want to get over it, you want to get to this utopia place, but you just can't get there. And you confess your failures and your weakness and everything in between. But I think once you have the end of the world, whatever that is, you have to make a new manifesto. You have to have a new place to aim for. And you are very aware of, okay, I'm not there yet, but it's a place to go. And that's why I decided to name the album Utopia, because even though many, many people have named books and films and everything Utopia, I felt it was a word that people very quickly understood that it was a manifesto. It's a place I would like to be at, but maybe I'm not there yet. So in a way, it's a strange kind of sincerity. is showing this kind of hilarious search that we all humans have for utopia and what is it that we want like what do you want you know how do you measure what is a life worth living and what is life not worth living and how do you measure yes all my dreams came true or no none of them came true like i think after a disaster like my divorce you have to kind of rediscover all these things and put a new manifesto And for me, it was also an environmental statement in the sense it's like, okay, we are not there yet. When we were working in the environmental world, we flew over to Iceland, the environmentalist Paul Hawking to Iceland to give some lectures. And I really remember this because we had this dilemma uh, and this contrast between the opposite poles. You had the people who wanted to make the aluminum factories and you had the people who wanted to be green. And he said, well, the way to do it, to make friends, and I was also thinking the matriarchy and the patriarchy, is to think, okay, what do you want to be in 10 years? If you sit down with people who are environmentalists and people who don't care about it at all, they are more focused on financial progress and to harness uh, nature's energy for those purposes. You sit them down and you say, listen, where would you want Iceland to be in 20 years and you give them a list and pretty much they agree they want the same thing so i was trying to use this method for the patriarchy and the matriarchy if you're gonna get solutions like not always go into skotgrævnar or to go into the black and white like black and white like men versus women mm. like the to shoot each other down or this kind of binary thinking you have to say, where could we be in 20 years? Okay, we could be there. Okay, what do you need for that? Okay, so maybe not use oil. Okay, you know, and then you kind of go backwards from that moment. So to have a utopian target, mm -hmm. and then if we only get half of it, that's amazing. Utopia.
sure that it was really tough for me to pick the right word because Utopia also has difficult baggage, like escapism, of course. But overall, I felt it had more pros than cons because I found a lot of words that were more unknown, but they wouldn't have this kind of contrast to the rest of what I was trying to do. It's not escapism for me. It's more almost like the Paris Climate Accord, you know, that in a way is utopia. Mm -hmm. Because will we ever reach that? Mm -hmm. Probably not. But that is the only way where the boat is sinking when we throw out the anchor to dig ourselves out of this mess. And the only way is to project into the future. And that in itself is utopian. I've said this story many times, but it always helps me very much when uh, London was stopping to use coal and they had not seen the sky for a long decade. It was just black smoke all the time. And they had just accepted that was part of being modern. It's like either, okay, you go back and you become a farmer or you accept the smoke, come on. And then the mayor just said, I ban coal. And I don't know how long it took, but a year later or something, you could see the sky again, you know, so I think for our ears now, it sounds like something really ridiculous. It's kind of why I also wanted the album cover and the costumes to be almost absurd, that it was almost like uh, humor. Like when you are talking to someone who's part of the patriarchy and you're telling him about hope, you know what, there is future for all of us. There's going to be amazing next chapter to the story, which is not the 20th century aesthetics and everything. They just look at you like you are Donald Duck. And I think that's why I actually really enjoyed to be on stage with kind of all these things in my face. And, and I wanted to be borderline like grotesque or absurd. There's no room for hope anymore. Like, it's not fashionable. When you watch Netflix, it's like 95% of the movies are very dystopian. And it's about mass murderers and glorifying them. It's like, I'm up for 50-50, you know, things with hope and not hope. But to have the balance, like 95% erase hope and 5% something that brings hope. I don't think it's the right balance, you know. But I feel now, with my next album, it's in a new place where it's not utopia, not the manifesto, or you have the recipe for what the future should be like, but you're more, you're trying to live in it. It's more like down to earth. You're more like, oh, trying all the things that you wrote in the manifesto, but maybe only half of them actually work because they were just ideas. And there's one thing is idea, but another thing is executing it. So it's more like going down on planet Earth from your cloud and seeing which of these ideas actually work.
Sonic Symbolism is a co-production of Mailchimp Presents, Talkhouse and Björk. And was made by Björk, Otni Eir, Ásmundur Jónsson, Anna Gida, Ian Wheeler, Julie Douglas and Christian Kuhns. It was produced by Christian Kuhns and edited by Christian Kuhns and Anna Gida. Special thanks to Derek Birket, Catherine Werner Bentley, Zach McNeese, Ivar Kjartansson, Bergur Thorison and Duna Steinun Thorgeirsdóttir. Music appears courtesy of one little independent records. <laughs> <laughs>